Hey guys, welcome back. In today's episode, we're going to be doing part two of this two-part series on Carl Jung's essential teachings, which are referenced in his own words, meaning I'll be playing clips of Jung uh, giving his own analysis of his own psychological system. And I'm also referencing and citing other Jungian scholars to flesh things out and providing commentary along the way. In the first episode in this series, I focused on Jung's essential teachings, his core concepts, and I really focused on the ego, the self, the conscious, and the unconscious, but we also went over the psychological types. And the main focus of this video is to take some of those ideas and put them into use in order to do a type of psychoanalysis on the modern zeitgeist, the modern, the psychology underlying modern civilization and the sort of social and political crises of our time. And in, in so doing, we're going to get a totally different look and a, a totally different way of appreciating what's going on in the world. And uh, so I think you're going to really enjoy this. And I also want to point out once again that this episode is part of a series uh, that's kind of going over and analyzing the contents of my new publication, Psychology, the Science of the Soul, with the subtitle and an introduction to the spiritual worldview of depth psychology. I have digital and PDF copies available on my website, um, are available on my e-store, which you can find on my website. I'll have links in the description. I also want to quickly note that just before I started recording this video, I went to my e-store and noticed that I had made a mistake and a lot of the stuff was marked as being sold out. So... I kind of stupidly been saying, check my website if you want to copy. And then little did I know that this stuff wasn't even available on my website. So I fixed that. It is available now. Uh, if you do want a copy, please go check it out. It is available for download. Or you can get a physical copy that I'll mail to you. I only have a limited number of those, but I'll be doing a reprint in the future. So let's kick things off here by playing a couple clips where we're going to kind of set the stage for the sort of larger social themes that are going to be investigated in today's episode. Um, so let's just jump right into it. Just a few months before he died, Jung summarized the religious emphasis of his life's work in a letter to an English correspondent. It's an amazing letter. One of the passages that struck me most strongly was one where he says, I have failed in my foremost task to open people's eyes to the fact that man has a soul, that there is a buried treasure in the field, and that our religion and philosophy are in a lamentable state. But one thing is sure, a great change of our psychological attitude is imminent. That is certain. Uh, why? Because we need more. We need more psychology. We need more understanding of human nature because the only real danger that exists is man himself. He is the great danger. And we are pitifully unaware of it. We know nothing of man. Far too little. His psyche should be studied because we are the origin of all coming evil. There's an old saying in philosophy, the proper study of man is man. And he's kind of emphasizing the fact that we don't know the, the average person 
uh, and certainly the uh, people who are running the very influential organizations who are acting upon the world stage don't understand themselves. They don't have self-knowledge and they certainly don't understand the dynamics of the species. I mean, how many people are educated in sociology? How many people are educated in this topic that we're talking about, psychology or depth psychology? Um, People know very, very little. Actually, one of the very first videos I ever posted on this channel uh, was making the point that the scientific study of, of human beings, the human race, is compartmentalized in so many different branches of study. And those branches of study are sort of siloed into their own uh, type of groupthink, or, or, or they're siloed into their own theoretical frameworks. And there really isn't an effort to integrate these frameworks and to, and to create a comprehensive study of man. So once again, the proper study of man is man. This means we, that all of science, you know, psychology and sociology, for example, and history and the study of our you know, anatomy and political science, all these things should be branches of one great study rather than treated as they are today as independent and separate things. So the, the orientation of someone who wants to study human beings is to pick a specific part of the human being and focus only on that. And there isn't this integrative study. So ultimately, that's what we need. And I think the mechanism to do that is, on one hand, philosophy, integrating science back into philosophy. Um, And on the other hand, it's to use this mechanism of system science, because I think system science is a linkage mechanism by which these different branches of science can be brought together. But I'll have to do more on that in a separate episode. I don't want to get too off track here. I want to make another point that... Uh, in philosophy, at least the, the teachings of Manley Hall, it states that evil is ignorance. So Young uh, here is stating that we're ignorant of ourselves, and this ignorance manifests as this type of evil, evil in the world. And uh, the manifestation of evil is people acting in ignorance. So these are some thoughts to keep in mind as we proceed forward, These these sort of like philosophical themes that will be ever present as we proceed in our analysis here. Um, I want to jump into now a couple clips that are talking uh, a little bit more specifically about how mankind has become imbalanced in its expression of psychology and in sort of modern civilization and sort of the development of Western civilization and industrial civilization and, uh, the, and the sort of pursuit of secular rationality and the sort of turning our back on religion and mythology and some of the effects that that, that, that has had on us. So let's hear some clips about that. Jung intuited an imbalance in Western culture in favor of one whole style of psychological and behavioral functioning, in favor of analysis, in favor of logic, in favor of external achievement in favor of social hierarchicalism and so forth. He asked what happened to the other side? The culture has gone into an economic and uh, political phase where the spiritual principles are completely disregarded. The religious life is ethical. It is not mystical. That is gone. And the society is disintegrating consequently. It is. 
the question is, will there ever be a uh, recovery of the mythological, mystical realization of the miracle of life of which our society is a manifestation and all of us, brothers and sisters, in the spirit of this all-informing uh, mythos. So now we're coming across an important theme that we're going to be developing as we go forward, which has to do with the sort of disenchantment of science or the disenchantment of the, of the worldview. And that's a phrase that I, I take specifically from Richard Tarnas, who is a, someone who I reference throughout this zine. And, and this topic is really the focus of the last chapter, the fourth chapter of this publication, which is called Rediscovering the Sacred. So a lot of the themes that we're developing in this video are going to be are covered in that chapter, and I'm going to be doing a, a video, a couple of videos actually, in the future on on that chapter. Um, but the the main idea here is that in in the development of Western civilization and in the promotion of Western science, or you could say secular science, as an as a replacement for religion. And the consequence of that is that we've lost the mythology and we've lost the meaning and the symbolism that goes along with the ancient religious mythologies. We are now living without a mythos that can integrate us psychologically on an individual level, but also on a collective level. That we need these, collect these myths uh, to, to give coherence collectively in, in our society. And so without this these religious motifs being prevalent in modern society, we have this, uh, this psychic splitting, I guess you could say that's happening. Um, but in this uh, upcoming clip here, Carl Jung kind of makes this point about how we are, we're, we're living without a mythology at the moment. According to the Jungian tradition, uh, our religions are produced something like works of folk art. Religion is the heart and center of culture, and it's through religion that we work out a common vocabulary of rituals and symbols, which together makes up a kind of house of meaning that we dwell in, our particular vision of the universe, of human life, of human personal relations, and so on. He thought that scientific industrial man was suffered great psychic distress and frustration because the religious side of our nature was repressed. Jung was trying to speak to that, to bring it forward. Uh, we think we are able to be born today and to live in no myth, in, without history. That's, that is a, a disease that's absolutely abnormal because man is not born every day. He's once born in, in a specific historical setting with the specific historical qualities, and therefore he's only complete when he has a relation to, to these things. Now let's go a little bit deeper into this idea of mythology and the role that it plays in human psychology. We touched on it a little bit in the previous video by connecting mythology as a sort of outward expression of psychological archetypes in the collective unconscious. So in this upcoming clip, we're going to hear from Joseph Campbell, and he's going to talk about the basic function that mythology plays in um, human psychology and in society in general. What the myth uh, has to provide, I mean, just on this immediate level of life instruction, the pedagogical aspect of myth, it has to give life models. And the models have to be appropriate to the possibilities of the time in which you're living. Well, the ancient myths were designed to put the mind, the mental system, into a cord 
with this body system, with this inheritance of the body, to harmonize. The mind can ramble off in strange ways and want things that the body does not want. And uh, the myths and rites were means to put the mind in accord with the body and the way of life in accord with the way that nature dictates. The uh, stages of a human development are the same today as they were in the ancient times. And the problem of a child brought up in a world of uh, discipline, of obedience, and of his dependency on others has to be transcended when one comes to maturity so that you are living now not in dependency but with self-responsible authority. So as we can see, mythology plays a very important function in human psychology. And on the individual level, it's integrative in terms of providing the person with a means by which they can integrate the powers that reside in the unconscious, meaning the archetypes, it gives them a, a outer form that you can engage with. And, and so the symbols and figures of a mythology you can identify with and you can see themes that are acting upon you internally through these archetypes. You can see these themes as being played out in these archetypal myths, myths of the, of the mythology. And so you can, uh, in a way, like put yourself into the myth and the myth gives you a, a sort of guidebook by which you can um, learn to work with these inner energies. So that's the function that myth plays. And as Young and Campbell are pointing out, that's what we're lacking in modern civilization. And the manifestation of that comes as a type of mass uh, neurosis. We become very neurotic. So this next clip is going to touch on these themes that have to do with the consequences of modern man living without a myth and how it makes us neurotic. And this is next clip is very, very timely for this current situation. I'm recording this in January 2022, obviously right in the heart of the uh, both the uh, sort of like epidemic of illness, but also the response, the sort of collective public and social and psychological response to this epidemic and how, how neurotic it's made people. So in this next clip, they're going to talk about health epidemics and how we have sort of mythologized disease in a certain capacity. And so the obsession that we have with this idea of, you could say, viruses in this, in this case, uh, that there's a certain motif in this obsession with these epidemic diseases, these invisible enemies that, that takes on a type of religious connotation. There's an archetypal quality and, and what they're going to kind of allude to is the idea that the way that we're engaging with these themes is partly a consequence of the fact that we are sort of starving for these, for proper outlets for these archetypal uh, principles within ourselves. So these archetypal principles are going to act upon us whether we like it or not. And, and as we were saying, the function of myth is to give an outlet so we can make them comprehensible. But if we don't have that outlet, then we'll we'll search, you know, and find an outlet somewhere else. And so in the secular scientific age, one of the outlets that sort of mankind has has focused its its energy on 
is this outlet of, of sort of fear and like uh, and like hypochondria and things like that, and and, and how these things have an underlying psychological uh, quality to them that's very important to understand. That's a quote from Dr. Jung. He said, "When we dismantled Olympus, we turned the gods into symptoms." If there's not, this is only a restatement of a moment ago. If we don't get a particular archetypal quality legitimately, it will, so to speak, pop up somewhere in its symptomatic, that is, its compulsive form. The gods have become diseases. Zeus no longer rules Olympus, but rather the solar plexus, and produces curious specimens for the doctor's consulting room or disorders the brains of politicians and journalists, who unwittingly let loose psychic epidemics on the world. And now, today, we certainly fall in, into that hole uh, and are confronted by the problems of the collective unconscious, which were then the same in, in 2,000 years ago, and, uh, and we are not prepared to, to meet that problem. For instance, such phenomena uh, as in uh, Hitler or, or so, you know, uh, that's an archetypical phenomena, and we've got to understand these things. Uh, it is just as so as if a terrific uh, 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 epidemic of typhoid fever were breaking out, and we say, now this is typhoid fever, isn't that a, a marvelous disease? We can take on in all dimensions, and nobody knows anything about it. Nobody takes care of the, of the, the water supply. Nobody thinks of, of examining the meat or something like that. So that's a very interesting quote to me, and it's so relevant for today, uh, particularly with the debate of uh, that's going on in terms of what's the actual cause of health epidemics? Is it viruses or is it toxicity or is it electromagnetic uh, poisoning causing imbalances in the, in the sort of electromagnetic field of the person? Um, this is a real debate that's going on, although not so much in the public sphere, but it is, it is going on in the health community. But one thing that isn't really factored in too much is the psychological underpinnings of this. And that's what we're trying to factor in here is that, uh, and I think what Carl Jung is suggesting here is that, you know, you can have an epidemic of something, and 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 what our tendency is today is to look at this purely on this materialistic level, like there must be some material thing moving in and causing illness at a mass level, and that's sort of like the basis of the virus perspective is that it has to be a material explanation. It must be a virus or it must be a bacteria, that's the source of all these sort of hidden epidemical diseases, and it's sort of that explanation. Um, and the monoculture of thinking that goes behind that, that a lot of the heterodox medical and health community is, uh, is critiquing and trying to find al alternate explanations. And I have a, a series of videos that are, have to do with the methodological issues and the scientific issues that uh, underlie this virus component. If you look at my archive uh, from 2021, I have several videos on that topic, so I'm not going to go into it now. But the main idea is that he's saying that, you know, you can have a disease like this and, and, and you can fixate on a, uh, 
a solution that's this material thing and you can give it this virus or bacteria explanation and you can give it all these attributes like today you know this this idea that we have this this virus that has all these different strains that can do all these magical things and we don't understand how it is but it's it's the single cause of all of all these symptoms that we're seeing around the world and and so we're we're constantly trying to transform the way we're describing and defining what this virus is and how it works and it's this mysterious thing and blah blah blah. so it's kind of like what he's saying with this typhoid fever thing it's like you you give it this miraculous series of attributes and uh but very few people you know when you do so you take away your ability to, to look critically at other underlying dynamics that could be the cause of illness such as toxic like the milk or or whatever he was saying which i think is hinting at towards like 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 a toxicity explanation i mean that's a very real debate going on today and it's interesting back in the 1950s carl jung was was pointing that out but the underlying thing he's he's trying to get to is that there's always a psychological psychological component in human life and so when we're trying to diagnose disease we can never actually take the psychology out of it in particular when we're talking about um epidemics of disease uh what he's suggesting is that there's a collective psychological aspect behind this that we that when you you that you can't have these type of mass formations that happen psychologically in, in which we collectively mythologize a type of uh explanation for things and in the scientific secular age this mythologizing takes the form of these sort of invisible material things that that none of us actually experience directly but we have these we create these narratives in our mind this sort of we we create myths in our mind and in our sort of popular media and popular discourse about these invisible things and so in a way it's very clearly linked to past mythologizing about the gods so to speak Uh, but like the like one of the the commentators early in an earlier clip said when we when we abandon the gods and the mythologies associated with them, you know, we, we can't escape from these archetypal principles or our need to ground these psychological forces within us into something in the objective world. So if we don't have these myths that we're turning to, instead we create new mythologies. And now I want to go into a couple aspects of Carl Jung's model of psychology that I didn't touch on in the previous video but that are very relevant in terms of understanding how and why these sort of mass psychological imbalances can happen. And these have to do with the concept of the shadow and the persona. And these two go together. Um, So the shadow is aspects of our psychology that we are repressing. And the persona has to do with the aspect of our psychology that we are promoting to the, to the world. And, uh, and so the aspects that we're promoting to others, our persona is, is very heavily correlated with the social milieu, the, um, the social zeitgeist or the, the dynamics of the society that we're in. So, the, so society in mass will tend to promote certain traits, individual traits, and will sort of punish or frown upon other traits. And so in relation to this institutional environment that we exist in, this social environment, uh, we will tailor our personality to fit in that context. And when we do that, we emphasize some aspects and we repress other aspects. 
And so the repressed aspects sort of metastasize into a shadow complex. And the, um, and then the persona is sort of the inverse of that. And so we're going to be hearing from Carl Jung and also Joseph Campbell, and they're going to be giving their descriptions of these two terms. And then we're going to build off them as we go. Now, another uh, concept or idea that seems to be a very interesting one in your work, at least as I see it, is the term or concept persona. The persona is partially uh, the result of the demands society has. And on the other side, it is a, a compromise with what one likes to be, or with what, or as one likes to appear. Uh -huh. so, yeah. so the persona is a certain, certain complicated system of behavior, which is partially dictated by society, and partially dictated by the expectations of the wishes uh, one nurses oneself. Yes. Uh, now, this is not the real personality. Now, in a traditional society, and uh, the supreme example is traditional India, the individual is meant to identify with the persona. He is to live in terms of what is called the dharma, the duty system that is put upon him. And he is a Brahmin. He is a warrior. He is a merchant. He isn't playing the role. He is it. In our modern Western society, which has much more respect for the individual values and the individuality, um, the person who identifies himself with his role, we call a stuffed shirt. <laughs> you have to put the role off and put it on again. It's not part of you. The executive comes home in the evening and is met by the executive's wife. The executive plays ball with his, the executive's son for a little while. And then later in the in night, the wife will have the privilege of going to bed with an executive. And uh, this is the thorough stuffed shirt. Um, I noticed uh, with my uh, uh, patients, particularly with uh, people that are in, uh, in public life, that they have a certain way of uh, presenting themselves. Uh, for instance, take the doctor. He, uh, has a, a certain way, for instance, he has good bedside manners, and, and he, uh, he behaves as one expects a doctor behaves. He may even identify himself with it and, uh, and believe that he is what he appears to be. Yes. Uh, he must appear in, in a certain form, unless uh, people don't believe that he is a doctor. And so when he's a professor, he's also supposed to behave in a certain way so that it is plausible that he is a professor, you know. Now, uh, such a uh, performance or, uh, say, yeah, the, the performance of the, uh, of the persona uh, is quite all right as long as you know that you are not identical with the way in which you appear. Yes. But, uh, if you are unconscious of this fact, 
then you uh, get into uh, sometimes very disagreeable conflicts, namely people will uh, can't help noticing that at home, for instance, you are quite different from what you appear to be in public. Yeah. And people who don't know it uh, stumble over it in the end. And uh, the more that is pronounced, the more people, uh, people are neurotic. Yeah. They get neurotic because they have two different ways, they are contradict themselves all the time and in as much as they are unconscious of themselves, they don't know it. They think they are all one. Everybody sees that they are two. Not only are you in our society supposed simply to put the role on and put it off, but also you're supposed to develop your critical faculties. This is the function of ego, of which the Orient and traditional societies know nothing. The whole character of Oriental thinking is elimination of ego. By eliminating ego, annihilating the critical faculty, you identify with the role that the society has put upon you. So those were about the persona, and we're going to jump into the uh, shadow here in a second. But Joseph Kill makes an important point that I, w I want to note, make a note of, and that has to do with the idea that the the persona is tightly related to a person's relationship with society, and the ego, the development of the ego, which I think he's really referring to, the development of of one's individuality, is something that is part of modern society, but was not part of tra traditional society. And so in traditional society, without the ego, the person lived in their persona. And that's sort of like the basis of the caste system. You become and you live and identify fully with your position in the caste system and you become that. And, and so you, you act out that, that social role and you identify completely with it. And sort of the trajectory of human evolution is to have the individual gradually learn how to differentiate themselves from the social role that they're playing. So that was kind of Joseph, Joseph Campbell's point with that. And then what Carl Jung was saying is that, that people can fall into identifying fully with their social role and their persona. Uh, they can experience a type of psychic split where they're not, you know, the, the, the full personality which incorporates the, uh, the conscious and the unconscious cannot be denied. So if you're only identifying with the conscious role, the conscious persona, and living in that identity structure, then your unconscious elements will come out and influence your behavior, but you can be in a type of denial about it. And so that's what he means by, you know, you think that you're one, but really you're two. That you have a type of uh, split, you know, you can develop a type of split uh, personality uh, by overemphasizing the persona and not integrating it with the fullness. And so this this idea that you you aren't integrated with the fullness of yourself re results in the formation of these shadow complexes. And so that's what uh, Joseph Campbell is going to talk about in this uh, sh kind of short clip coming up. Knowledge of the unconscious is gained by the ego, by way of projections. The unconscious, and this is something that is really serious, unconscious is unconscious. You don't know what's down there until you experience it by way of a projection. The shadow is the 
rejected, frightening aspect of your experience of life, which then gets projected onto people. It's the you that you are refusing to admit. It has terrifying, threatening qualities, but it, you must remember that it also encloses values, positive gold values, that you have not allowed to come into your life. Uh, before moving on, I want to return briefly to what I was just talking about a moment ago with this social role and the identification with the social role and sort of the traditional relationship between that dynamic and the caste system and uh, and what Joseph Campbell was talking about in terms of being a stuffed shirt. Uh, I want to play a clip from one of the interviews with Carl Jung um, that I found from the 1950s in which the interviewer asked him asks him about whether or about his opinion on this sort of the, the a kind of social model in which human beings are integrated into like a, a political or social machine and uh, you know I think in a modern term think almost like the the sort of chinese uh state and and, and sort of what not the chinese people but the state and the way, and, and and the way that the state is um, trying to implement itself upon Chinese society in this in this sort of like authoritarian totalitarian type of complex where everybody is sort of fitted into a box and you know there's a lot of talk today that the sort of tra- the future of the of, uh, you know of what the Western elite want to do with their Great Reset agenda is to create a society that has a similar type of dynamic. But anyway, uh, just check out this clip from Carl Jung here. As the world becomes more technically efficient, it seems increasingly necessary for people to behave communally and collectively. Now, do you think it possible that the highest development of man may be to submerge his own individuality in a kind of collective consciousness? That's hardly possible. When I think of my patients, they all seek their own existence and to assure their existence against that complete atomization into nothingness or into meaninglessness. Man cannot stand a meaningless life. Now I want to move on and play a clip from Manly Hall, actually. And this clip, and I'm going to play several clips. These are ones that are referenced from a previous episode that I did back in May in which I broke down and analyzed a... Um, lecture from Manley Hall titled uh, Carl Jung and the F- Flying Saucers, I think, or something like that. Uh, but it has to do with this book that Carl Jung put out that has to do with the symbolism of UFOs and flying saucers and and, and what it means. And he does this type of psychoanalysis on the topic. He's going to talk about th- this notion of collective psychology, the collective unconscious and how the collective unconscious can cause mass psychological formations or mass psychological events. And this is relevant for today because I think in my diagnosis in chapter three of this book, I I discuss uh, drawing from Jung and Manley Hall and and work from Richard Tarnas and, and, and Stanislav Grof that what's happening today in the world is a, an archety- archetypes acting on mankind 
and causing a, a, a mass uh, shadow complex to develop. And the shadow complex results in these mass formations uh, that have to do with this vaccine issue, that the vaccine issue has, has a type of symb- symbolism behind it that is being, it's like mythologized in a certain way, kind of like what we're talking about with viruses and, and, uh, and Jung was talking about with like typhoid fever, that there's a, a myth-making involved with what's happening in the world today and that we are responding to these events uh, psychologically in a way that, that suggests a collective shadow uh, catalyzation that's, that's going on. So, uh, so here's Manly Hall discussing collective psychological events. This brings us then to the next important factor of our problem. Up to the present time, we have generally thought of psychic experience as a rather personal, individual thing. Jung approaches the problem as to what might cause a collective attitude on a mystery. In other words, there are private problems which we must solve as private citizens. But there are also collective problems to which we react collectively. And this collectivity is to Dr. Jung an important key to something. This collectivity, in our case, depends somewhat upon the general situation of the world in which we live. Just as surely as we may have an unpleasant domestic situation or children who give us unusual problems. So as a collective group, we are now under a series of collective pressures. These pressures, for example, can represent what uh, Dr. Jung points out as world cleavage at the moment. The world psychologically breaking up. The world psychologically dividing. Division is always a cause of apprehension in the natural life of man because it means confusion. And confusion presents problems on various levels. And in almost every instance, confusion is overpowering to groups of persons. Thus, instead of an isolated person here and there coming under a psychic tension, more than 50% of our people is suffering from some form of psychic stress tension. Dr. Jung points out, therefore, that almost identical stimuli are now affecting vast groups of persons. And he also points out that this is the proper and natural cause for what might be termed mass hysteria. The presence of mass hysteria arising from common causes means that we now have hundreds of millions of persons under tension from identically the same type of pressure. In the individual, these pressures are specialized. 
the individual uh, in his personal relationships with others is under pressure, therefore his reaction is highly individual. And another man in the same block, under pressure, will react differently because his personal pressures are of a different nature. But beneath these personal pressures, which cause an infinite variety of reactions, there are these mass or archetypal pressures, which are of tremendous intensity. This means that while we may react differently to the things that happen to us as persons, we may react with amazing similarity to things which happen subjectively or archetypally to vast groups. Our story then reveals changes within the archetypal psyche, collective and individual, the individual always existing within a collective, against the pressure of which he has not absolute immunity, only degrees of immunity according to the development of his own interior personal potential. So it's interesting to compare the current climate with what he was just talking about. So there's this, these collective uh, psychological motions that can happen, and they can take form, or they do take form, as these pressures. So you have an archetype and acting upon the, the collective as a mass uh, collective psychological pressure, and that this mass pressure will affect each individual depending upon their own level of personal integration. So in this age of globalization and global media, you know, the whole, you know, you have hundreds of millions or billions of people who are collectively experiencing a common set of pressures through the vehicle of a common set of symbols. So in a way, the, the coronavirus or the epidemic and, and the vaccines, these represent a common set of symbols that mankind on a global scale is is collectively confronting and it's it's coming in as a type of psychological pressure that is confronting each person in their own individual way but is very much a mass psychological component to these events and these symbols and if we now turn to another uh aspect of of global geopolitics and global news and things that are affecting the the psychology of of the collective where we can look at the ufo situation and that this is this would be something that would be you know the most people would, would not want to talk about or deal with or take seriously you know even a few years ago but now since the new york times and the u.s navy and very other various other official groups are talking about it it's become now an acceptable symbol for the whole the whole world to look at and, and, and begin to engage with. And so, you know, the UFO itself becomes this, this type of, uh, it's a symbol, it's a, it's a vehicle through which a certain archetypal symbolism can come in and, uh, and affect the individual psyches of mass groups of people throughout the globe at the same time, simultaneously. And that's really what the focus of Carl Jung's book was and what this Manly Hall lecture uh, that's on the topic of Carl Jung's book. That's what it's really dealing with is the symbolism of the of the UFO. So we're going to be playing some more clips from that. Uh, but what I really want to be moving into now is looking at the need for a new mythology in this scientific age. And uh, and so 
So first off, I'm going to play something that is uh, referencing this idea that science in this new secular scientific age, that science has become uh, the new religion, meaning the symbols of science and, and the, the objective facts of, of the world, such as the idea of a pathogenic virus or the idea of UFOs, that this that these are, are become the elements with 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 which mankind is constructing a new mythology for itself, and and this is a motion that we now have to contend with, and uh, so we're going to be breaking down this idea of it. We need a new myth, but one that's custom tailored to the scientific age. Um, so let's hear now this idea that science is the new myth. Today, the idea that man does not have all the truths or all the answers seems commonplace. Jung looked to man's lost psychic origins to restore some balance. However, some Jungian analysts now argue that we are still ruled by myth, but by a new myth, and we are unaware of the fact. Analyst James Hillman. Yes, the modern man had lost his myth, had lost his sense of myth. But you see, we've moved that, we've moved that. Now we realize that technology is our myth. The myth is always the thing you're in and don't know it's a myth. See, science is, uh, is man's current authority. It's, uh, it's the one thing that is, uh, is believable now. It's... Uh, it's our reality, and we can't escape that. A much more difficult thing to say, and antagonistic to many ears, is that science is our present myth. Science is our as-if. Has science replaced religion in that sense? Yes. For most people, science is their religion. The same thing applies to science fiction. It's a modern mythology. I think it's safe to say that science fiction, in, in all its various forms and variations, does have one basic recurring theme. It's the theme of extraterrestrial intelligence, in one form or another. There, it has a multitude of, of forms it can take, but that's the basic idea. And. Uh, that's highly significant uh, psychologically because it, it demonstrates that the, the second center of the psyche, the self, is all ready to be discovered. In this next clip, Manley Hall is going to go further into this uh, notion of extraterrestrials and the symbolism involved. Uh, so this goes along with the UFO phenomena is the question of where do they come from and does it imply that there's life in the universe that's coming in and visiting our world and impacting our world in a variety of ways. In a sort of what I call a documentary mixtape series that I put out last year in which I spliced together clips and reports from a variety of sources, uh, I kind of tell the story of the terrestrial aspect of the UFO phenomenon, which is has to do with this idea of a of a Manhattan Project type uh, situation that has been in development since the era of Tesla, I would say, or even before. Um, so it's called Secret Space Program, and uh, you can find that on my YouTube archive, but also in my podcast archive. 
but in this clip, we're going to be dealing with a different aspect of the phenomena, which is the symbolism that we're projecting onto this notion that there are extraterrestrials. And, and you see a lot of debate about whether they're good ETs or bad ETs or whatever. And in the in, in, in psychology, factoring in the, the depth psychology perspective, there is this very interesting symbolism between this debate uh, in which the the ETs take on roles that former formerly like spiritual entities would take on. But in this sort of secular age of science in which we deny the spirit aspect of the world and, and the idea that there are sages and saints, but also maybe uh, sort of spiritual entities that are negatively polarized, that instead of this, these sort of old religious concepts and old philosophical concepts, you know, these are the archetype of those patterns are now projected into this sort of secular materialistic realm in which these, you know, alien entities from unknown, you know, physical dimensions uh, are visiting us and, and, and influencing, you know, mankind from on high, you know, ha- having some sort of intercession in human affairs. So uh, that's what Manly Hall is going to be talking about is the, is the symbolism of E.T., and I think it's really interesting. Now, in the interpretation of flying saucer phenomena, we run across a number of diversified accounts. Uh, Some opinions are to the effect that we are being surveyed for possible invasion, that out of space some type of creature is going to arrive, uh, some are said to have arrived, measuring in size from about 20 inches up to about 20 feet. Some of them resemble human beings. Some seem to be highly intellectualized octopi. But whatever they may be, they are supposed to be out looking us over. Now, what does man inevitably do? He measures instinctively and archetypally and comes up subconsciously with one of the most just thoughts he has ever had. Namely, if someone is looking us over, they are not going to see much. (laughs) This is uh, a a very uh, common thought. Also, if people from somewhere else are looking for a better world, this is not it. (laughs) So there is one school of thought that insists that after taking a look around, uh, these various recognizance flights depart to their own cause deciding to wait a while or to uh, give humanity additional millennia in which to ripen. There is this thought. Another group dominated with a somewhat more uh, fearful uh, interpretation suggests that perhaps some of our recent scientific experiments are known to those on other planets or stars and that it looks so much as though they were going, we were going to blow ourselves up, and perhaps them also, that it might be wise to take a look around and see what could be done to prevent the common disaster. This is actually man's natural, subjective, archetypal thinking under an emergency. He therefore assumes that the occupant of the mysterious interspace vehicle has a mind like his, is reacting approximately as he reacts, and that 
as in the case of ancient mythology, gods are men plus. That they have very much the same natures and constitutions, but they have more authority and power with which to do something about it. More intelligence, more native understanding, but of a kind similar to our own. Then there is another group that is quite convinced that on this mysterious aerial tramway, we are going to be reached by beings of superior intelligence. And the reason we know that they are going to be superior is because they are going to be peaceful. Do you see the psychological content in our own thinking there? At the moment, our idea of superiority is arbitration of dispute without war. That is a goal. That is something we have not attained, but something we believe that an ex-superior may have attained, a deity or a power. That this power, whatever it is, appearing out of space, comes this time not with a sword, but with peace. Therefore, that the purpose is essentially to assist us. Here we have a more valid statement of man's natural theological insight. So I really love that breakdown of the the symbolism involved with the way that humanity is uh, engaging with the ET concept and how there's there's certain religious motifs that are being projected onto the the ET and what those motifs tell us about ourselves. And we're going to be going deeper now into the the dynamics underlying the UFO phenomena. And uh, here Manley Hall is going to be talking about the psychological meaning of the UFO as, the, as, a, as a spinning circle or a spinning wheel. In this level of thinking, we will assume that something moves across the heavens. This something is for the most part described as a spherical or plate-like disk. This disk has been seen. There are records of it having been seen hundreds of years ago. Jung points this out. But he also points out that the whirling disk is not only a scientific symbol, but one of the oldest religious symbols of mankind, something we are inclined to overlook. In Indian mythology, in the wonderful story of the Bhagavad Gita, the deity Vishnu tells Arjuna, the prince of men, that when virtue fails upon the earth, I will come forth. Among the basic symbols of Vishnu, always carried by this deity in one of his several arms, is the chakra or the whirling disk. This whirling disk is also the Buddhist and Tibetan mandala or mandara, the symbol of whirling motion. And most of all, in all mythologies, the symbol of totality, of unity and of completeness. And then you read in Plato somewhere, the soul is a circle. I suppose the circle represents 
a totality. Within the circle is one thing. It is encircled. It's enframed. That would be the spatial aspect. But the temporal aspect of the circle is you leave, go somewhere, and come back. The Alpha and Omega. God is the Alpha and Omega, the source and the end. Somehow the circle suggests immediately an completed totality, whether in time or in space. The appearance of the chakra or whirling disk would be difficult to explain consciously to Western man, even as it would be difficult to explain the whirling swastika-like hammer of the, of the Nordic deity Thor. The hammer which thrown vast distances, performs its mission, and then whirls back like a boomerang to be captured again by the deity of power who wields it. Here we have a mysterious whirling symbol. A symbol which has from the beginning of time archetypally been employed in religion. There are many other examples of this same type of symbolic figure. It appears in vestments. It appears in various uh, religious art, both Christian and non-Christian. Most of all, however, it is a subconscious power symbol. And it is also unconsciously or subconsciously in man a symbol of the presence of a power superior to man and likened in the Indic mysteries to Vishnu. Now Vishnu is the preserver. He is a symbol of the protection of man against the inevitability of absolute law without mercy. He is the intercessor. He is a presence of messianic significance. In Buddhism throughout ancient times, the belief in the advent of a new power of benevolence in the form of the celestial bodhisattva Maitreya has been recognized. In the last 50 years throughout the Mahayana areas of Asia, where this type of Buddhism dominates, Legends have been gathering that this deity was to come again and would come soon for the salvation of his people. That this Maitreya principle or symbol is also, therefore, the symbol of a deity coming in glory for the salvation of his people. All right, so let's go back and recap some of the ideas we were just going over. Uh, so... A few clips ago, we heard about how science has become the medium in which the new mythology is, is being born or taking place. And then part of that is you can see this sort of myth-making happening in science fiction. And then going deeper into the symbolism of science fiction is this is uh, the sort of like ubiquitous concept of extraterrestrial intelligence, which takes a variety of different forms. And this idea that there is an intelligence out there that affects Earth, there's a, a, a type of psychological theme that's involved with that that is uh, archetypal. 
And uh, that one Jungian analyst was talking about how this is a sign signifier of the eventually of the self, of this concept of the self as the, the sort of intelligence power outside of, of sort of a material existence that can Im impress its will upon the world. And in Jungian psychology, of course, the self is like the apex archetype of the unconscious, the collective unconscious. And Manley Hall then revisits the same concept. But he focuses on, in, on the ET uh, situation and looks at the symbolism of the way that we hypothesize uh, extraterrestrials as the source of UFOs. And he looks at the different ways in which mankind has been considering this ET concept. And he looks at the archetypal symbolism involved. And, uh, and then he moves on to looking at the shape of, or the format in which this UFO phenomena most often appears, which is a spinning wheel, a spinning disc. And he looks at the archetypal significance of, the, of that. And he notes that the, the circle, and we also heard from Joseph Campbell about, about the significance of that symbolism, but, uh, it has to do with, um, it's a religious symbol ultimately, and it has to do with the self. So once again, we're... We're looking at a clustering of themes here that are signifying uh, the onset of a new era in which this dynamic new psychological factor is going to be is, is starting to be born within the collective psyche of man. And so we're going to be continuously now looking at this interplay between science uh, as the medium in which our new mythology is being born and also these sort of new factors that are suggesting that the self the concept of the self, which is ultimately ha has a religious connotation because the self in psychology is equivalent to God, um, how that is now moving in into the psyche in a, in a variety of ways. And a lot of the symbolism in which we've been engaging with this UFO slash ET concept uh, is suggesting that mankind is sort of grasping at these uh, larger themes, these larger symbolic themes. Um, so now we're going to look at, uh, we're going to keep going with this pattern of thinking, uh, and we're going to keep hearing from Manley Hall. And this next clip, Manley Hall is going to be talking about the, t the particular timing of when this whole situation is happening, this whole globalization of the world, the interconnection of the human mind, the fact that uh, all of humanity is facing similar psychological pressures and dealing with some similar symbolisms uh, coming down at the same time. So we're now it being integrated into like a collective, you know, consciousness um, in which many different individuals are dealing simultaneously with collective uh, pressures and themes. And um, he's going to be talking about the the idea of the great platonic year. And the platonic year is the motion of the sun around the zodiac. And it has to do with this. Um, it's actually connected. I'm not going to go into details about it, but it's connected to the rotation of the Earth's axis around the uh, North Star. Um, so it has to do with the, with the, with the pole, the shifting pole uh, of the Earth and how it moves around uh, these, this group of constellations um, in the North, Northern Hemisphere. So not the Zodiac, but the, uh, the North Celestial Pole. Uh, but the, the Sun's motion is connected with that cycle. Um, but the sun's motion around the zodiac, uh, as many people know, is uh, is moving towards the end of the Piscean uh, era, 
uh, the Piscean Age, and uh, and then following that will be the Aquarian Age. So we're moving into a, a transition point between ages, and he's going to be talking about how the uh, the timing of all this, this this stuff that's going on within the collective psyche, is is tied to these greater transformations. And then uh, and then after that, we're going to be um, just to give you a preview. We're going to be looking at the nature of the technology or the shifts in physics that we're going to have to be dealing with as we continue to engage with this UFO concept. And we're going to be uh, looking at the um, the relationship between Aquarius, the, an air sign, and this idea that there is an ether. Uh, and the ether is an old concept of physics that was supposedly discredited. It wasn't actually discredited, but there was a type of shift um, of science in the public sphere away from looking at this concept and it's my contention that this either concept has been continuously developed and technologies based on it have been developed um, <clears throat> since the time of Tesla uh, as part of like a Manhattan Project type secret secret program um, so anyway we're going to be looking at all these topics and the psychological symbolism involved various explanations are therefore largely in terms of our present psychic pressure. That what we are really dealing with is a, is a crisis. A crisis in the great platonic year. A crisis in which man, moving from one pattern of archetype symbolism to another, is confronted with an entirely new way of life. A way of life which is in his own archetype, but is not in the persona or outer conscious self. And the relationship of archetype impelling and impressing itself upon self, upon the objective person, results in bewilderment and confusion. Until this bewilderment is arbitrated and this confusion solved by the integration of the two parts of man's own nature, or the establishment of an interior totality. This interior totality is announced, as mysteries are announced, by the appearance of the peculiar symbol of the deity of totality, by the rising in man's consciousness of the sense of this great whirling wheel, which into a measure at least is the wheel of fortune, the wheel of life, the mysterious cyclic symbol of the great platonic ear also. That this phenomenon of the flying saucer should arise as the vernal equinox moves toward the Aquarian point, and that this consequently implies, as it did to the Egyptians, Greeks, and Romans, and also to many Asiatic peoples, a major motion of world consciousness, world pressure, and that this motion is from a water sign to an air sign, and that therefore the atmospheric mystery, the mystery of air, and that which is concealed within air, must become increasingly psychologically dominant for a period of more than 2,000 years to come. As the sign uh, to which the psychic content of archetype is moving at the present time, 
bears upon this peculiar mystery. It is quite conceivable why an air sign should bring in an age of air. But it is also symbolic that it is not ordinary air. It is not the kind of air that blows upon our cheeks or fill the sails of our ships. It is not the kind of air that we simply obviously accept, the kind of air we think of as being better in the mountains. It is another kind of air. It is an air of life. It is a power moving in air. It is the symbol of an energy-filled space. It was a fluidic power. This is force fluid. This is vital fluid. This is the mysterious brill. This is universal energy made available to man. Now, putting all these things together, we're, we're seeing that mankind is now confronted with many new elements, new features of civilization and society, and with new collective psychic pressures such as uh, a global epidemic on one hand, you know, UFO phenomena on another hand, and we're also dealing with global scientific concepts being shared around the world, and we're looking at uh, science fiction themes such as like the Avengers, how that is like a, a global phenomena of, 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 of myth-making. So essentially we have this idea that in the scientific age, man has lost its myth or its traditional connection with mythology and has therefore become rootless in a way. And, uh, but there's an archetypal need for myth. So we begin uh, myth-making out of the elements of our current social pattern. Uh, whether we realize it or not, that's what we're doing. And as Dr. Jung points out, we are now standing in the presence of the creation of a world mythology. A mythology built upon an entirely new dimension of human experience. This is no longer the mythology of ancient gods rattling their spears. This is a mythology based upon the mystery of space itself. What I'm hoping to do here with these Manly Hall clips is to introduce the idea that there's a symbolism behind the UFO, the spinning disc, for example, behind this way that we're treating the extra extraterrestrial problem, that there is a type of archetype, religious archetype involved with these elements. And they cluster around this idea of the self and the unconscious, but particularly the self as being the uh, the apex archetype, the the apex god of the psyche. So it's it's the uh, the true sovereign power in existence. So in the rest of this video, I want to look at some of the key elements of mythology that if we accept the premise that we are now building a new myth and we need to build a new myth for ourselves, uh, but this myth is not one that's going to just go back and try to do a new purely religious approach to myth-making, that our new myth has to be one that's, that integrates science. So in my view, it's this concept of a new science based on the ether physics 
mixed with Jungian psychology and this dynamic understanding of the self, perhaps also integrating the idea of metaphysics and that the, which comes to us through this either concept. Uh, but the idea that uh, the mind or the psyche has an existence metaphysically in space. And there's also, you know, the, the dawning interest of interest in astrology and, uh, and the different scientific perspectives on astrology in terms of it actually being something that's scientifically de demonstrable that these astrological motions in the heavens do very objectively have a effect on the themes that are playing out in human life. And the dynamics of human life are, you know, connected, and you can prove this scientifically to the motions of the planets and the and the zodiac and the motion of the sun, etc. That all these things come together to, as tools with with which we need to build our new mythology. So our new mythology will be an ensouled science. And uh, so yeah, the either. Jungian psychology and these other concepts are elements by which we can, uh, that ha that th these are elements that have a scientific basis. They're based in the, in the observation and study of objective reality, but, uh, but they're, they're ensouling them by connecting them with our, our, our consciousness and our inner, um, spirituality. And, uh, and the, tr the, the end of that will be a situation in which we're going to interpret and practice our religion in a way that is not at odds with our understanding of science and technology, that, the, the, that these will begin to synthesize. Um, and it's my ultimate contention that the, the, the link that, you, that we need to connect science to religion is philosophy and understanding of the meaning and purpose of philosophy in human life and the, and the true history of philosophy and its connection to the mysteries so anyway, and for the rest of the video, I want to be dealing with some of the, what are the, the key themes of mythology that we need to focus on incorporating into this new myth that we're building. And there's certain themes that have to do with uh, the archetype of Christ consciousness um, and its relationship to the self that we need to be looking at. And uh, there's a connection to the either um, concept as the medium with which the subtle energies of consciousness move into a material form. Uh, these are all elements of this, of this new mythology that are going to be crucial, I think. Every god, every mythology, every religion is true in this sense. It is true as metaphorical of the human and cosmic mystery. There is an old story that is still good. The story of the quest, the spiritual quest. That is to say, to find the inward thing which you basically are. All of these symbols in mythology refer to you. Have you been reborn? Have you died to your animal nature and come to life as a human incarnation? You are God in your deepest identity. You are one with the transcendent.
The problem is to identify yourself, not with the body which is falling away, but with the consciousness of which it is a vehicle. And when you can do that, and this is something I learned from my myths, what am I? Am I the, uh, the bulb that carries the light, or am I the light of which the bulb is a vehicle? And this body is a vehicle of consciousness. This is the problem which can be then metaphorically understood as identifying with the Christ in you. And uh, the Christ in you doesn't die. The Christ in you survives death and resurrects. Um, you, you have written one time or another some sentences which have surprised me a little about death. Now, in particular, I, I remember you said that death is psychologically just as important as birth, and like it, it's an integral part of life, but surely it can't be like birth if it's an end, can it? Yes, if it's an end. And there we are not quite certain uh, about this end. Because, you know, there are these uh, peculiar faculties of the psyche that it isn't entirely confined to, to space and time. You can have dreams or visions of the future. You can see round corners and such things. Only ignorance deny these, uh, these facts. These are, it's quite evident that they do exist and have existed always. Now these facts be, show that the psyche, in part at least, is not dependent upon these confinements. And then what? When the psyche is not under that obligation to live in time and space alone, and obviously it doesn't, then in, uh, to that extent, the psyche is not submitted to those laws. And uh, that means a, a practical uh, um, in, uh, continuation of life, of a sort of psychical existence uh, beyond time and space. Do you yourself believe that death is probably the end, or do you, do you believe that... Well, I, I can't say... You see, the word belief is a, diff a difficult thing for me. I don't believe. I must have a reason uh, for, for a certain hypothesis. Either I know a thing, and when I know it, I don't be need to believe it. If I, I don't allow myself, for instance, to be believe a thing just for the sake of believing it, uh, I, I can't believe it. But when there are sufficient reasons to, for a certain hypothesis, I shall accept these reasons, naturally. And should say, we have to reckon with the possibility of so-and-so. Uh, with respect to consciousness, our notion is that the brain is the source of consciousness, something of that sort. The traditional idea is that the brain is a function of consciousness. Consciousness is first, and the brain is an organ that <clears throat> encapsulates consciousness and focuses it in a certain direction, on the direction of time and space knowledge. Lunar consciousness, consciousness that dies as the moon does and is resurrected. I spoke of the serpent yesterday, cast its skin to be born again. So the serpent represents the power of life, energy, and consciousness to throw off death. But it is in the field of death. 
It's consciousness in the field of death, throwing off death and putting on new bodies. Reincarnation, and life has moved on, is throwing off these bodies and putting on new. This is symbolic then of life energy and consciousness engaged in the field of time, the field of death and birth. Solar consciousness, the sun does not die. When it sets, it takes light with it. It does not carry death in itself. So this is consciousness disengaged from the field of time. It is though the whole universe were a dream, dreamed by a single dreamer, in which all the dream characters dream too. And so all these dreams interlock. Well, this is an idea that comes up in India in what is known as the net of Indra. The universe is, as it were, a net of gems in which in all the junctures of the net, at each of these there is a jewel. And each of the jewels reflects all the others. That's this idea of we're all particles of this great cycling dream. So again, what I'm trying to do here is to isolate the core concepts that we need to incorporate as a foundation of this new myth that we're making. So one of the, the, the key themes here is the relationship between the self and the ego. And um, so the self in this context, uh, in terms of Christian mythology, can be associated with the Christ. And, uh, and so the, the task for the ego consciousness, which is the consciousness that is centered on the individual person or within the individual person, is to move, is to reorient itself so that it's not focusing on itself uh, in, in which case the person's consciousness is egocentric, but the ego learns to look to the self for guidance and let the self be the, the sovereign ruler and to, to uh, operate and function, for the ego to operate and function uh, in a way in which it obeys the will of the self, the higher self. And so a lot of these religious motifs from the past have to do with this basic balance between the self and the ego. Um, so I want to again continue with a couple more clips on this theme just to, to nail it home with the idea that that this understanding has to be the basis of this new myth that we're making for ourselves. So even though the terminology and the symbolism is going to come, as I was saying, through scientific terminology, that it's no longer going to be these uh, these figures, these archetypal figures, these mythological figures that we're going to need to find a more objective form in which to describe these motifs. These motifs are nonetheless, uh, and these themes are nonetheless things that are essential. And this idea of the self and the ego and the resurrection, death and resurrection of the ego in relation to the self. Uh, these are themes that are going to, are, have always been critical to mankind and will remain the critical features that we need to incorporate and find a new language to express in this new myth that we're building for ourselves. What do you think about Jesus? Jesus was, was a person who lived out of the Christhood of his nature. 
Now, according to the normal way of thinking about the, uh, the Christian religion, uh, we cannot identify with Jesus. We have to imitate Jesus, but to say, I am God, as Jesus said, is for us uh, blasphemy. Mm-hmm. However, in the Thomas Gospel, Jesus says, He who drinks from my mouth will become as I am, and I shall be he. Wow, that's Buddhism. He's talking from the point of view of that being of beings, which we call the Christ, who is the being of all of us. And anyone who lives in relation to that is as Christ. And anyone who incarnates, or rather brings into his life the message of the word, is equivalent to Jesus. That's the sense there. We are all manifestations of Buddha consciousness only don't know it. And the Buddha, the word means the one who waked up, bod, to wake, woke up to the fact that he was Buddha consciousness. And we are all to do that. To wake up to our Jesus within us, this is blasphemy in the normal way of thinking in Christianity, but it's the very essence of Gnosticism and of the Thomas Gospel. The, uh, this is the condition of what in uh, Buddhist tradition is known as the Bodhisattva. The one whose being is being sattva is illumination. He knows that in the world, in the field of bondage, the eternal power plays. And so you have this formula of joyful participation in the sorrows of the world. You can't eliminate the sorrows of the world. Time involves sorrow. And if you're in the field of time, that is the experience of your carnal body. But that which is participating in this is has another dimension, the eternal dimension, and it can joyfully affirm this. This is one way, and this is the way that Augustine, in one passage somewhere, and I've forgotten where it is, reads the crucifixion. Jesus came to the cross like a bridegroom to the bride. That's to say, you come voluntarily. Eternity eter- uh, participates voluntarily in the processes of time, which are of sorrow and death. And so he comes to the cross, which is the cross of life and time, voluntarily. And when you get that affirmative aspect, you've got a sense in Christianity that is heroic. The accent, however, has been on Christ's suffering and our sins of having poured their weight upon his shoulders and this poor, poor man, how he suffered for you. That's not it. There's the other crucifixion of uh, Christ triumphant with his eyes open voluntarily on the cross and that's where we all are and when you can identify yourself with that myth you're released. Do you see what I mean? When the ego is capable of that participation in the crucifixion then you are in the imitatio Christi. You really are in the imitation of Christ and you've achieved the goal I would say of the Christian message. I really love those quotes from Joseph Campbell. I think they're really beautiful and they, they do a great job encapsulating the core ideas that we're dealing with here in terms of the fundamental framework of traditional mythology and how we can articulate that in order to reformulate it for a modern age, for this new modern myth that we need to build uh, in which religion and science are integrated. Um, I have one more clip uh, and I'm going to conclude things. Uh, In this last clip, we're going to be talking about Jung's concept of individuation. And so 
basically individuation is this modern concept from Jungian psychology that describes this the the spiritual path the method for integrating the ego or the bodily self uh, with the higher self or the as we were talking about the Christ consciousness this path of releasing the light within in Jungian terms is given this concept of individuation and there's a linkage between how Jung approaches this task of release or individuation and uh, then the traditional esoteric science of, of alchemy in terms of uh, this release is one in which you are bringing all your potentials into fulfillment and you're also equilibrating the different functions and dynamics of the soul or the psyche. Uh, you're integrating these and bringing them into balance with each other. So there's a release and a balancing aspect that's involved with the, the task of individuation. And so <clears throat> the idea is that each of us needs to put ourselves on this path and identify ourselves as being creations of this higher consciousness and uh, and that our task is to release this consciousness within our ourselves and uh, and this is given this this release of of the higher self into the lower self has been given the the name of Freddie Silva calls it the living resurrection so Jung gives this the the term individuation this process and, uh, and so in this last clip, he's going to just give a very brief uh, description of it. And he's going to give it the analogy that individuation is like the tree growing from the seed. And that each of us has this spiritual seed uh, that was planted in the beginning of our, um, our individual life paths here on earth. And that through the course of many lifetimes... We die and resurrect and do it over and over again as we gradually grow ourselves from the seed to the oak, to the tree. And that the, this idea of like the fullness of individuation is the, is the full blossoming, blossoming of ourselves uh, spiritually into the fullness of this tree. So that's uh, individuation. And so thank you very much for tuning in. I'm going to be continuing with more uh, videos where I do a breakdown of this uh, new zine, Psychology of the Science of the Soul, and, uh, and these various concepts that we've been talking about here uh, are, are in here in, in different forms and dealt with in, in the zine in different forms. So please check it out, and thank you very much for tuning in. God bless. Uh, of course, you brought up many, many very, of course, very interesting and provocative ideas here, as you have, of course, in your many, many... Uh, thousands of pages of writing and written work. And, uh, of course, running through all your work, there are many of these ideas in the, the personal unconscious, the race unconscious, the self, the ego, the persona, yeah. uh, the, the energy principles, such as we mentioned entropy and equivalence and so on, in a sense, the first and second law of thermodynamics, I believe, that you uh, suggest or allude to. And uh, uh, now, in trying to look at the whole person, of course, uh, uh, when is struck that, that you are trying hard to look at the whole person, that you don't want to look at these little parts of this person, but feel there's sort of a total future realization of the whole that may be very important. That uh, you talk, for example, about a process of individuation, 
how this whole person emerges, if I'm not mistaken. Would you like to comment a little bit upon this, this process of individuation, this process of uh, how all these factors move toward a whole, a totality? Well, you know, that's something quite simple. It, uh, take uh, an acorn. Yes. Put it into the ground, it grows and it becomes an, uh, an oak. Yes. You see, that is man. Yes. Man develops from an egg. Yes. And develops into the whole, into the whole man. Yes. And, and that is the law that is, is in him. 